Hey, everybody. It turns out that when we recorded this episode, I didn't quite set things up right and uh, forgot to actually record myself. I recorded my guests just fine, and luckily they did a lot of the talking in this conversation, but my audio is just gone. It's, yeah, not recoverable. So most of the observations and thoughts I had spur of the moment are lost forever. But I don't want to just ditch everything, so I'm going to try to Frankenstein this baby back together. Luckily, a lot of what I said was scripted, so those parts will plug in just fine. I'll also record a few lines to bridge the other's conversation. This will be an interesting experiment, and we'll see how seamless we can make it sound. But I'm letting you know in case it doesn't sound that way. All right, here we go. friends at Fangamer, and this is the podcast where you get to hang out with weirdos who work at a video game merchandising company. I'm your host, Charlie, and I'm joined today by Sarah, Jack, and Carolyn. Say hello. 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 Hi. Today, we'll be continuing our EXP share for Avatar The Last Airbender, this time covering the first half of Book 3, Fire. Specifically, we'll be covering chapters 1 through 11, which is a little more than half the season, but chapters 10 and 11 are basically one big episode, so it makes for a better midpoint. I thought this worked pretty well last time, so once again, I'm going to start us off by briefly recapping the episodes we'll be covering, and then we can explore whatever aspects we'd like to dive deeper into from there. Sounds good? Good. Episode 1, The Awakening. Aang awakens on a Fire Nation ship and discovers that a lot of time has passed since their defeated Ba Sing Se. The world thinks he's dead, so the gang has begun gathering allies for a surprise assault on the Fire Nation capital on the day of the eclipse. Aang resists letting people think he's dead, but... Eventually, he relents, and he and the gang uh, start planning to rendezvous with the assault force later. Meanwhile, Zuko returns to the Fire Nation as a hero, receiving his father's acceptance and also, thanks to Azula, the credit for killing the Avatar. Episode 2, The Headband. The gang attempts to blend in as Fire Nation citizens, and Aang attends a Fire Nation school for a few days. He teaches the Fire Nation children to dance, and the gang escapes after hosting a secret dance party. Meanwhile, Zuko visits Iroh in prison, but Iroh refuses to speak to him. Episode 3, The Painted Lady. The gang visits a downtrodden town, and Katara takes it upon herself to help its people by assuming the guise of a protective spirit and destroying a nearby factory that's polluting the water. The army retaliates against the town, but they're driven off. The gang then helps restore the town before leaving. Episode 4, Sokka's Master. Sokka seeks a way to become a more useful member of the group and ends up becoming the apprentice of a Fire Nation Swordmaster. After a few days of training and forging a sword of his own, Sokka reveals that he is of the Water Tribe, and he ends up in a battle with his master. He loses, but the master sends Sokka on his way with his blessing. Episode 5, The Beach. Zuko, Azula, Mei, and Tai Li go to Ember Island for vacation. They terrorize the beachgoers and learn a bit about themselves and each other. Meanwhile, Aang and his friends are attacked by a powerful assassin sent by Zuko. Episode 6, The Avatar and the Fire Lord. Aang and Zuko learn the history of the relationship between Avatar Roku and Fire Lord Sozin. These two friends, the Avatar and the Fire Lord, eventually become adversaries, yet Sozin's plan for a Fire Nation empire comes to fruition when Roku dies. Zuko learns that one of his great-grandfathers was Avatar Roku. Episode 7, The Runaway. Toph leads the gang in a series of scams to enrich the group, which leads to tensions between her and Katara. 
After coming to terms with each other, Katara and Toph attempt to scam together, only to get caught and be used as bait for Zuko's assassin to kill Aang, but they manage to work together and escape. Episode 8, The Puppet Master. The gang encounters a mysterious old woman in the woods who turns out to be a long-lost waterbender from the Southern Water Tribe. She offers to teach Katara bending techniques, but she's eventually revealed to be a cruel person using waterbending to control people's bodies to get revenge on the Fire Nation. Katara helps to capture the old woman, but she's forced to use her terrifying technique to do so. Episode 9, Nightmares and Daydreams. Aang has trouble sleeping in the days leading up to the assault, having increasingly stressful dreams and getting more and more exhausted. Eventually, his friends are able to ease his concerns and help him get some rest. Meanwhile, Zuko realizes, upon receiving everything he's ever wanted, that it's not really what he wanted. Episode 10, The Day of Black Sun, Part 1, The Invasion. Zuko apparently says farewell to the Fire Nation in May, as Aang's allies from around the Earth Kingdom join the Southern Water Tribe warriors for the assault on the Fire Nation capital. Using submarines invented by Sokka and the Mechanist... The assault force enters the bay near the capital and proceed toward the capital using Earth Kingdom tanks, fighting back the Fire Nation as they go. Meanwhile, Aang enters the Fire Lord's palace on his own, only to find it empty. Episode 11, The Day of Black Sun Part 2, The Eclipse. The assault force continues to fight their way to the Fire Lord's palace as Aang, Toph, and Sokka search for wherever the Fire Lord is hiding. They find secret tunnels in a nearby volcano, but where they expect to find the Fire Lord, they find Azula instead, who keeps them occupied until the eclipse ends. Meanwhile, Zuko confronts his father and explains that he intends to join the Avatar. With the eclipse over, everyone tries to escape, but the Fire Nation's new air force proves too powerful and fast, destroying the submarines before the assault force could reach them. Aang, his friends, and the other young members of the assault force escape on Appa, while the rest of the force resigns themselves to being captives. Zuko, after discovering that Iroh had somehow escaped from prison during the eclipse, follows Appa alone in an airship. Whew. I think this is the first episode in a while where I don't think we really have to go back and address something we didn't cover in a past episode. So let's jump right into it. Where should we begin? Probably the first episode, right? Because that's kind of, you're stepping in from a really tense situation with uh, the attempted murder of Aang. And kind of like, I, I see that episode really good at setting up how the group has to like pick up the pieces from here. I also think it just the whole episode strikes a new darkening tone. Like we are completely in Fire Nation colors now. And just the opening is so disorienting because, you know, it's Aang waking up and he's on this captured ship. And his tone is so dark i think there's one point where he's like i need to redeem my honor and then it like match cuts to zuko's ship continuing that parallel between them but showing a switch in them like they're sort of switching roles now yeah i feel like in some ways he is confronted with the reality that he had failed and was very close to failing permanently and had to kind of uh, reckon with that reality. What about him compromised people in that situation? What about him couldn't step up to do what was needed? Definitely, I've seen him in this episode, like internalize that and taken that burden to himself. But in a destructive way. Yeah. Just like, I also think going on this switch of Zuko and Aang, Zuko definitely does that, you know, like take the burden onto himself. I'm the only one who can chase the avatar. But it seems to me like this whole season is about redemption in the sense that like later we'll get with the avatar and the fire Lord. We understand how 
Avatar Roku failed the first time. So it's like not only is Aang trying to redeem his defeat at Bossing Say, but he's trying to like redeem Roku. And also Zuko is trying to redeem himself now, not to, um, or his priorities are switching in the sense that he's starting to think about redemption, not in the sense for his father and his country, but to Iroh. Is this the episode, first episode where we see Iroh in prison? I think that's second one. Because the end of the first episode, I think it's just like Ozai being like, welcome home. And you're like, oh, there's Ozai's face for the first time ever. Mm -hmm. He was a shadow. Iroh's role in the show has diminished considerably in this part, but not completely. I have heard that they needed to restructure some of the story because of the death of Iroh's voice actor, Mako, but I wonder how much. Like, without Iroh, Zuko is forced to grapple with himself and make up his own mind, and it's a believable journey in that way. Would having more Iroh in the early episodes of this season have helped with that? I think he speaks and tells the Avatar and the Fire Lord where he gives him the like crowned thing which where did he get that by the way like where'd that come from (laughs) who are iroh's messengers how are they getting things to him maybe it's just like you gotta smuggle something when you go into jail (laughs) (laughs) maybe he wasn't talking because he had it in his mouth the whole time just like "Mm." we all just yeah give it away but also my question is like where did that even like presumably roku was like wearing that when he died, when his volcano burned. So like, where did it come from? Yeah. How did Iroh? And I just love thinking about the backstory of Iroh and like how he Iroh's the dragon. Yeah, and like we we start to learn more about the White Lotus, right? With Sokka's master, like giving him a piece of when he's done training with that mask, the sword master, he gives him a piece of the white lotus and just like pieces starting to come together and it all surrounds iroh i didn't actually call it did i i was not a dragon right he wasn't ruko's dragon no no he wasn't also regarding roku's little fire crown that sozin gave from i don't think he was wearing it when he died if i remember correctly there was a shot where you know when the volcano started erupting where roku and his wife wake up in their bedroom and, and we can see the crown i think in the foreground sitting on a bedside table or something i don't think he was wearing it while he fought the volcano so i assume his wife grabbed it while they escaped or something oh. uh, still that little detail of him not wearing it so I guess another testament to how they seem to have thought of everything. Yeah. I think one of my favorite parts about season three is Katara and just like watching her arc and her continue to develop relationships, her relationship with Sokka progressing in the painted lady of they have that like interaction or they have that like sort of fight. And then Sokka ends up like helping her out and coming with her. And then also her relationship with Toph really progressing and like getting more of a closure to what started in season two. And then obviously bloodbending. Yeah. Um, and just oh, complicating her story even more with like this immense power she has. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I really appreciated how much prominence Katara gets in these episodes. Of course, everyone gets at least one episode that focuses on them, but Katara gets two: the painted lady and the puppet master. And she also plays a prominent role in what's uh, otherwise the Toph centric episode in the runaway. There's also a sequence in that episode where they, Aang is like, I give you the avatar promise that we're not going to steal. And then it's just a montage of them stealing <laughs> that gets so out of hand so fast oh. to the point where like 
Sokka's pretending to be a police officer and yeah. this away. Yeah, yeah. No, that, that scene probably made me laugh the hardest, I think, out of just the direction in that is just like the timing, like the little, like the beats of the music matching up with the money stacking up on his arms. Yeah. And then the very big wink he gives at the end is just... <laughs> Oh God, it was so good. I really like one of my favorite shows I've been watching lately is uh, Better Call Saul, which is all about just the antics that like this con man gets up to. And the runway was, it's, it's might be one of my favorite episodes of the show so far. It just all, nothing but just sort of that, sort of the mischief that it goes, yeah, the, sort of the mischief of the con life and the uh, sort of the trouble that it can lead to. It's very good mischief, very good mischievous episode with some, good characters we like good character interactions in it as well yeah these episodes pack a lot of character growth in a short amount of time and i'd say katara develops as a character in the runaway at least as much as she develops in say the puppet master that that episode is interesting to me in particular because if i think about who katara and the puppet master are based around in real life being inuit culture right inuit mm-hmm. um people you can see that that the puppet master in particular is coming from a history where her people suffered through genocide, right? Which is very true to what has happened in American history. I, I've kind of witnessed this like across board with um, other portrayals of indigenous cultures as well too. They are within media and seen as like a curse to characters or kind of exists as like curses because that's that's how I would argue it's being portrayed at least in this episode is that they have a very or at least the puppet master herself um, has a very developed ancestral power of blood bending um, that only she can do and that only like other blood benders um, or sorry other um, water benders are able to do as well and her bloodbending is seen as like the curse of the town where she lives in to where mm-hmm. she's like bringing people to a cave to get like sacrificed, right? What exactly is she doing with the people she captures? The show doesn't really go into much detail about Hama's endgame, does it? Yeah, I, well, I, I think what she said was that, you know, they locked her people up to just waste away. So I think that I think that was it. That she was just going to lock them up and just let them starve, I guess. But I, I do think it was also kind of just a convenient way for her to not just have been killing people. So, which I mean, bloodbending could be so much worse. Like sort of um, what she does with the flowers and stuff like that. Instead, she just moves people around. As far as uh, being able to take such sort of a dark subject matter and make it, you know, appealing to kids. Like, I still got goosebumps during that episode. Like that was a, such a really good balance of mystery and sort of like a dark revelation. I like what you're saying, sir, in terms of like seeing it as a curse on the town, but also it's a curse now that Katara has to hold. Yeah. Um, and that she has to sort of reckon with. And it's very tied to this idea of ancestry and from Hama's point of view, responsibility, right? Um, Like this is very complicated, dark subject matter and questions that children like maybe don't understand the full complexities of, but I don't know, like real, real world emotions dealing with very real world events. 
yeah, I've never, I've never thought about it in terms of the curse. What other, um, like media, or do you have another example of like a curse? Yes. Yeah. So, um, in the poltergeist, what I've seen is that like you, uh, are, are like kind of, it's centered around a haunted house. Right. Um, but that house is built on like sacred Indian, like burial grounds. Uh So that's why it's haunted. And like the genocide of like indigenous people exists as like a curse to like almost cleanse to seek reparations in some way or in, in the case that's projected here vengeance yeah i would something i would like to do which i haven't done but read more about the the inspiration behind you know the different nations and where where their point of views are coming from like you and i sarah have talked a lot about like the hairstyles and where are the hairstyles coming from and that's something that i'm not familiar with but i feel like there's got to be a book out there somewhere talking about sort of like the maker or the creators the cultural um, inspiration the cultural inspiration thank you for putting words that yeah. fit that i couldn't make <laughs> Yeah, the cultural inspirations for the character design. Well, I think I saw a tweet or something about, uh, or maybe we talked about during an episode where we were talking about how one of the characters, there was a someone had um, shown the concept art for, I don't know, someone like Aang or something. They have like three outfits or something. And Zuko has just like two dozen versions of himself with different mm-hmm. hairstyles, different outfits. Since... Avatar came back on Netflix. Instagram has been filled with, and Pinterest has been filled with new Avatar fan art, and I'm so here for it. (laughs) That was giving me so much joy. That was so hot at the time when the show just like first came out too, and maybe it was with the friend group I was surrounded, but like. There was like just so much talk about shipping and I don't know, just like shipping, shipping, like shipping characters with each other. Oh, yeah. 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 And I'm like a huge I think I've talked about before, like it's one of my like I love looking at the animation and it's really an inspiration that taught me how to draw. And I love especially in season three, I feel like they took so many like they got bolder with their animation style, if that makes sense. Like I'm thinking particularly of a shot that is, it's during the painted lady and it's from the perspective of the oysters that they're trying to buy. And it like looks upside down at the weird guy who's like selling them these oysters and he's upside down for like that entire conversation. (laughs) Um, And they use perspective so well, just in the show in general of like using that Z axis to really have things come at you in a way that I don't think I've seen a lot in 2D animation. Yeah, I know that the show used 3D animation now and then. Sometimes it's a bit obvious, but usually it blends in pretty well with the 2D animation. One example where they really use perspective effectively is anytime the gang has to fight Combustion Man, and you can see that clear line of where he's sending the explosions. And the sound design adds a lot, too. You can almost feel it, like, ripping through the air. Yeah, it all just comes together to make Combustion Man feel really threatening and unique. So we're sticking with Combustion Man, not Sparky Spark Boom Man. Gotcha. Yeah, yeah. With that whole the whole time he's trying to come up with different names. <laughs> Sarah. Um, mm-hmm. I wanted to loop back around and talk a bit because when we were on the subject of Katara and her and Sokka's relationship, one of my favorite moments is when she overhears Sokka talking to Toph about the fact that he can't 
picture his mother's face. And I always wondered if like he knew that Katara was like down below and might be able to hear them. I don't I don't necessarily think that's the case, but he was like, oh, that'd be mm-hmm. cool. I don't know. I just think that that's like, again, another, it's a really real moment between Sokka and Toph and developing their really strong relationship as well as Katara's relationship just with everybody and just like learning to accept that like her motherly characteristics which are questioned earlier are actually like good characteristics and strong parts of her that people value yeah that whole exchange that there are a few parts of the show that are guaranteed to bring tears to my eyes or make me emotional and that reveal from Sokka that he doesn't remember his mother's face that that gets me every time not not just that he reveals this but because Katara overhears this and learns what he thinks of her and I just think about how that must make her feel. It's it's tragic and beautiful all at once. Yeah, that moment's also really powerful because I think it it's something that I think a lot of people can relate with when uh, you care about someone a whole lot and there's like things that you want to say to them but you can't bring yourself to, like face-to-face. But just sort of shows like how healing that can be to talk with people. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, definitely relate to that. Yeah. I also think that moment where Katara is listening really shows like a, a key element of storytelling that can be very powerful. And that when it, when it doesn't happen, I, I think a show will, will lose something if they don't do this. And what I mean by this is like the fact that you have another character in the show observing a character's growth Um, or like a big moment and it's not just to the audience like one-on-one with that character i'm particularly comparing this to a time in game of thrones where they didn't do that in the eighth season and i was so mad it's like and i'm not gonna be a thrones tangent but i really admire avatar's use of just like really great storytelling because if if another character like if katara is witnessing this moment for sokka again like if katara wasn't there it would not be nearly as impactful and i think that Anybody who wants to write, pay attention to that. <laughs> yeah, I think it's it's something to almost like be a bystander when someone is standing up for you, especially in that moment. I, I definitely felt like Katara felt isolated, perhaps. She was pushing for something that nobody really supported her, supporting those values that she held, right? So to hear someone um, also express in a very knowing place the same values as you and is willing to stick up for you behind closed doors mm-hmm. is very yeah, important. That's a good point, behind closed doors. It is behind closed doors. I also think it's just a moment where you realize that there's still children, which I don't think we get a lot in young adult novels as much or young adults, like children's yeah. shows. It's like, oh yeah, obviously these 12 year olds are trying to save the world, of course. But like, I don't know, that's a moment in this show when it's like, oh, they are literally just running around without their parents and they miss their parents, right? And they have complicated relationships with their yeah. parents. I feel that, especially in any like CW show, it's been forever since I've seen anything, but it's just the impression I get is people or like young adults taking on the burden of everything in an isolated way and their relationship with their parents is not one of like mutualness in any way something that's always bothered me about the kingdom hearts series is how they let you know that zora has a mom 
but then there's nothing after that. Like they're just <laughs> off there and just the parents are just gone. There are none. But this is like, we really interact with the parents and the la- and parental figures. And we grieve for the lack of per- like Aang grieving for monkey. Atso. Yeah. That's one of the impressive things about what Katara does with the information she overhears in Sokka and Toph's conversation. Like, yeah, she could just accept Toph's apology and be done with it. But instead she makes an effort to meet Toph where she is and propose a scam of her own, something Toph's parents would probably never do. She's in effect saying, look, I love you not for who I think you should be, but who you are, and I think that's important. We also see this with the contrast between Fire Lord Ozai and Sokka's dad. Last season, Sokka met with his dad and was making an effort to impress his father to make him proud, but his dad makes it clear that he's already proud of Sokka for who he is. His love and his pride are unconditional. In this season, though, Zuko's father expresses his pride by listing reasons he's proud of Zuko, which implies that without those reasons, he wouldn't be proud. Ozai's respect for his children is very much conditional, and that's that's heartbreaking. Um, and all the while that this is happening, we also have Azula just scheming, <laughs> uh, which is great. I it's She's the best. But scheming in a very tactful way and in a way but I'll, I'll, at the same time like Azula doesn't have unconditional love either like Ozai's not capable of unconditional love for sure but unlike Zuko she's able to satisfy Ozai's conditions effortlessly since she seems to have a natural predisposition for the traits Ozai wants to see in his children on the other hand in the beach episode we see that kind of coming from her mother instead yeah that's what I was gonna say yeah uh, the beach the beach episode is so good <laughs> Absolutely. It's it's so fun to see these characters just out of their element and in this much more mundane setting where they have to interact with regular people. They're just so awkward around these other kids, which makes for some excellent comedic moments. It's also just nice to get to spend some time with these characters who we've just seen as villains for so much of the show. We get to see them as just people for a while, getting to know their thoughts and their struggles, and we start to like them a little bit more. Even Azula has some humanizing moments that seem almost out of character for her. Like, in particular, I'm thinking of the part where she's talking to Ty Lee and basically calls her easy, which uh, understandably upsets Ty Lee, and you actually see Azula seem to feel bad for a moment and apologize and admit that she's just feeling jealous of Ty Lee, which Ty Lee immediately waves away in her flattering way, which I think is further evidence that Ty Lee is far more calculated and savvy than she lets on, but anyway, yeah, that moment of vulnerability was interesting for Azula. For sure. And I think it just shows... The fact that Azula, like, that her relationship with May and Ty Lee is more complicated than just, like, in her mind, in their minds, maybe they're fueled by, like, whatever they're fueled with, right? Like, for Ty Lee, maybe it's, like, fear of repercussions. And for May, who knows what it is for May, honestly, but, like, maybe just, like, going along with it. But for Azula, she really does believe that they're her friends and that they will be loyal to her over everything, not because... Not necessarily because she instills fear of them, but because she grew up with them. Or, yeah, has just, like, spent enough, or has not left her, if yeah. that makes sense. Because, like, I I almost think that she has a very twisted sense of what relationships are. Yeah. And for her, it really isn't a mutual benefit with relationships. Because it's a one-way street, right? In which, like... Azula gets what she wants. And if she wants people around, then they'll 
be around. Just trying to really describe like it's a one way street for Azula. And the way she values friendships is just staying around. Staying around and also, you know, doing what she says. Yeah. Like seeing Zuko, because he grew up with them too, right? And there's that line that Tylee says where he's like, you don't know me. And she's like, I know you. Like she also grew up watching Zuko and like watching Zuko leave and then probably watching May deal with that fact. I know last time we talked a lot about like how May might have been affected by Zuko being banished. And yeah, I, I think there's something there. Yeah, we don't give Tylee credit for that. But hey, it's okay because they can all come together and bond over getting revenge on Chan and Ranjan. Yeah, their revenge. Their revenge for being invited to a party and one of them talking to May. Those bastards. <laughs> well, nobody ever accused them of being good people. But no one ever accused them of being bad either. Like, <laughs> wait, who are we talking about? Oh, yeah, I'm talking about Azula and her gang. Oh, gotcha, gotcha. Yeah, no, it was pretty obvious that, like, yeah, this episode was weird for me. You bring up a lot of good points. It was a good episode in a lot of ways, but I don't know. It just, it was a strange one for me, I think. It just felt very, uh, there was a couple episodes in this uh, half of the season that felt very, like, influenced off of Western culture. Like, it was when Aang went to school, them saying their the Pledge of Allegiance to the Fire Lord and, like, having recess. And then the episode basically ends with, like, a footloose, like, prom and stuff <laughs> like that. And this episode where it really just feels like Azula and Zuko, like, Zuko and gang just got copy and pasted over into, like, a, I don't know, the Karate Kid or something. Like, just having beach parties and then the bullies come over and kick sand on them and stuff like that. Like, it it just seemed very... <laughs> <laughs> very out of place in a lot yeah, of ways. That's fair. Well, yes, absolutely. But I think that's the fun part of it. Like we're talking about these, we're taking these powerful, competent, actually threatening villains and juxtaposing them against what would count as villains in a story with far, far lower stakes. And it's kind of cathartic to see just how just nothing these beach bullies are in this context. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Those types of characters, I guess like are written to be like, the bullies in the sense that they're they're popular, right? And they're kind of like, I'll take what I want. Yeah. <laughs> when when yeah. they're playing volleyball and she's like, you will never rise from the ashes of your shame. Yeah. <laughs> so I'm like, you really see just, whoa, Azula, you're a lot. Yeah, well, it was interesting because like, in that context of a social gathering with young people, right? They were seen as the outcast. Mm-hmm. Because they're so awkward in everyday, like, personable interactions. Okay, I think this will be a good point to take a quick break. Let's cover some fangamer news, and then we'll return to our discussion of Avatar The Last Airbender. I want to start off this fangamer news segment by once again encouraging you folks to check out our Stardew Valley Collector's Edition for PC and Switch. This was a huge project for us, and we've been working on it for months, so... I hope you go to Fangamer.com and at least give it a look. I mean, hey, we've all been stuck inside for the past few months. Wouldn't it be great to be able to at least pretend to be able to go out and work some fields and build relationships with people in a small town? I mean, I know that's already something a lot of you are doing with Animal Crossing, but I honestly personally prefer the way relationships develop in Stardew Valley. And I mean, of course, they're very different experiences to begin with, but you know. Also, our weekly Twitch streams continue, this week's host being Eyes5, Master of Plush Making, and next week's host being... 
Me. <laughs> so I was going to do a bit where you said me. And I'm like, what? I know I'm not ready, but no. <laughs> I actually got reminded this morning. So it is a little bit of a surprise still. I'm going to be continuing kind of what I did last time, except um, last stream, I kind of did a lot of uh, introduction to 3D modeling and explaining the basics and slash a tutorial slash live modeling. Whereas this time it's basically just going to be all live modeling. I really uh, miss the old, um, what was it, Camille Art Fridays, where she would uh, model it with clay and then stick it onto a Katamari ball, and it just become this amalgamation of different art, like artwork that she made. Yeah. Uh, I, I kind of want to do that. I kind of want to do something similar to where uh, the world we made in Unity for VR Chat. I want to kind of turn that into sort of like a garden of just like populated by art created on stream. That can just be like perused online with people. So yeah, that's what I'll be doing. I'll just be taking chat requests and just doing it live, uh, kind of commentating over the process, kind of explaining what I'm doing, why I'm doing it. And then when it's done, it'll all just be added onto the world we created last stream. Last stream, we made Chad Kirby eating a pickle Rick while holding a Star Trek phase gun, I think. So I did the, I did the token like meme for my like 16 year old nephew who was on stream, but I'll be, uh, I'll be, I'll be trying to diversify and take a lot of other uh, requests. And again, we'll try and uh, populate this little VR chat world with a lot of uh, creations that we kind of made as a group. Any other fan gamer news to discuss? Uh, oh, one more thing about Stardew Valley. Also like animal crossing, it's multiplayer. I found Stardew Valley multiplayer actually to be kind of more stressing or more stressful than the uh, than the uh, single player game because time does not stop ever so <laughs> you you always have to be doing something otherwise i just i feel i see the time ticking away super fast and it's like oh no like it's a new season i gotta plant seeds and like i need to count the spots but <laughs> as i'm doing that time's going away but if you if you aren't you know, trying to hit a certain goal or something. It's just really fun being able to cooperate with friends and like, be like, oh, well, I'll take care of the ranching. I'll take care of the farming. I'll do the mining stuff like that. And just having all your efforts come together and just create the perfect farm that you all work on. All right, let's return to this Nicktoon discussion. I start a new episode, the opening Nickelodeon intro, just like, nah, 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 just makes me jump out of my skin. I, I just lunge for the volume controls. It's so loud. But I, but I used to rent Ren and Stimpy VHSs as a kid. And I remember like, I would love the intro. I would make sure I'd be all snuggled in with popcorn and a blanket and just get, I want to get nice and comfortable for the Nick, 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 Nickelodeon. I yeah, love that. Yeah, I'm, I'm, uh, I think I mentioned in a previous uh, episode that I've been watching them. When I watch the episodes, I usually watch them back to back. So it, it's just skip credits, skip intro. So haven't seen the intro or the credits for a while. The intro's good. I like the intro of Avatar. Yeah. Um, with like Katara's voice. I also skip it, but I've seen it so many times. <laughs> oh, yeah, I, I definitely skip the end credits most of the time, but every once in a while, I watch them just to check for, for instance, there's this guard watching Iroh, who seems to treat him a bit nicer than other guards, right? Well, I noticed that she sounds a bit different from everyone else, and I wasn't sure if I should know the voice or not. Like, So I watched the credits, and I learned that she's actually voiced by famous tennis player Serena Williams. Oh, wow. Oh, cool. It's a celebrity, celebrity appearance. Serena Williams love Avatar and ask him to, to voice. Yes, exactly. Apparently, she's just a big fan of the show. Wow. Oh, so, so maybe that's like not a uh, not a 
not a professional voice actor either. That whole time that Iroh's getting buffed, though, <laughs> like, <laughs> I love that ruse he plays where he's just like a crazy old man, like clapping in the, in the cell. Yeah. He's actually doing like clapping push ups. Or again, or, or maybe he just had a prison check sheet, like checklist, you know, like again, he smuggled something in, check, get buff, check, um, break out, check, you know, like, yeah, I, no, I think he's just enjoying his time. He's like, yo, here I am. I may as well make the best of it, you know. Ignore Zuko, check. Yeah. <laughs> when we next time we see Iroh after he's out, he's just covered in like tats. He just, he just inked himself while he's in there. Do we see, oh, here's a quick question. Do we ever see him without his robes earlier in the show? Like, is it, has he always been buff? Has he always been wearing a pillow under his, like, robe? No, no, yeah, we see him a few times earlier, like that episode where he was captured by the Earth Kingdom troops. Oh, yeah, you see him in Hot Spring. Okay, okay, crud. I li- like the thought that he's just always been, like, while he was in prison, he's just maintaining. Speaking of getting stronger, I really like how usually when we see the gang in their downtime, they're almost always training in some way or another. Yeah. There's a time where they're like in the water hole with all the walls around them, and then it goes down the slide thing. How combustion man finds them where they're just hanging. Yeah, yeah, they offend every now and again, but yeah, it is rare that they ever, like you said, just kind of glide, like take the easy way out. They're always looking to better improve themselves. Um, speaking about keeping up training, I just wanted to say before we run out of time, there'd be a great clip that I would love to see, like posted somewhere out of context from the Nightmares and Daydreams episode. Uh, just just show Aang sitting up and going, it's okay, Momo. I still got my pants. All right, time to train. And then gets up and starts punching a bush. Yeah. Like, just that out of context would just, oh, that'd be beautiful. That whole sequence where he's having that, like, the dream just gets totally, you know, out of hand. That is another really good play. Like, it, it mirrors Zuko's fever dream. And we see, we actually see one shot in that, where you know that in season one where Zuko is trying to get through the ice barricade where he's like swimming into the North Pole, we actually see Aang in that position yeah. with Zuko sitting over him. So this like, again, this continuation of the role reversals in the imagery, even if it doesn't make any sense, like how could Aang know that Zuko had done that? But um Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I always like that sequence just in looking for the symbolism of the imagery. Also, it was like an homage to other animes too, right? Trigun. Yep. Or, or yeah, Trigun or also reminds me of, well, I guess the hair was very Trigun, but like the jacket and stuff. Man, all of it was Trigun, but it also reminded me of, who's the guy from Final Fantasy X? With the one, you know, he's got like his arm in the sling and... Oh, Aaron. The, Aaron, yeah, I got a lot of those vibes too from his second form. I think, yeah, that, that episode was really fun. I feel like the creators were just, they knew that things were about to get really serious and momentum was really going to pick up. And I felt like that uh, episode was like a great kind of a pacing break where they were just having fun for yeah. a while. Jack, going back to something you mentioned earlier, where the kids in the Fire Nation school recited their Pledge of Allegiance to the Fire Lord, there were a lot of references to the nationalism of the Fire Nation. On the one hand, it's clearly a reference to the nationalism of Imperial Japan back in the 20th century, but I think it's even more obviously referencing and commenting on American imperialism. Yeah, it could definitely be a reference to a lot of different points in history, like a lot of different cultures. But yeah, I, the thing I got the most of, the strongest feeling I got from that moment was saying like your pledge of allegiance to the flag. It felt very much, it felt very much like an American school system. 
Yeah, and not only that, but the way their flag is flying on everything, the military focus of the nation, and of course the, there's the fact that these episodes were coming out in 2007 while we were years deep into the war on terror, but it all really came to a head when Zuko confronts his father on the Day of the Black Sun. That whole speech he gives about how he was taught that ours is the greatest civilization in history and we're just sharing our greatness with the world. What a beautiful lie that was. They don't see our greatness, they hate us. We've created an era of fear in the world. I was really disappointed with um, Zuko's another, I don't know, 90th heel turn at the end of um, season two. But I guess without that, he wouldn't have had that moment with his father. Like he wouldn't have been able to get that close to him and to be able to talk with him the way he did. Oh, man. And yeah. consciously reject everything that the Fire Nation is. Mm hmm. There is a moment where he, you know, redirects the lightning and you can see in Ozai's face, like, oh my gosh, is he about to shoot me with that lightning? Mm -hmm. um, and then he doesn't. But that just brings me back to, like, what happened when Iroh returned from Bossing Say and, like, seeing Ozai for the first time. And, like, we know that he can redirect lightning. Like, is this something that Ozai's come across before? I think about this a lot. Going back to the parallels between the Fire Nation and America, it seems kind of weird to think about a nation that's been like the world's military superpower for 100 years at that point. But it's worth noting that America has been a world military superpower for at least 80 years now, forcing our doctrines on other countries throughout the Cold War and continuing to this day. Yeah, wow. wow. That's for sure. Yeah, we, we talked about this often to where it's like so much military spending is upheld with how the United States negotiates with other countries, international trade for one. Um, it's almost like you have to sustain military in order to keep your way of life as Americans, which is sustained through like, I, I feel like deals that exploit labor overseas more than anything. Mm -hmm. And natural resources. And yeah. But like, again, just to tie it back, that's built on like how American way of life is. Um, and it can also only sustain itself with the indoctrination of we're doing this to spread, you know. To free? Yeah, to free people, to civilize people. Definitely in season one, they call, you know, Earth just like savages and... Yeah, I don't know. It's really talking about real-world events, <laughs> which is why it's great to have children watch it. To move on from the heavy stuff, I, I got to mention how weird and fun it is to watch Zuko and May's relationship. Like, they're so, I, I don't know, like the Adams Family, the way they're like, I don't hate you. I don't hate you, too. Yeah, I know. I, I remember watching, I think it must have been in the first episode where we learned that they're together. And I just remember asking, like, how and why? <laughs> Want to make out? Yeah. Their, their relationship doesn't build in any way. So all, all we know from their relationship is that May had a crush on him starting from very like a very young age, right? And that's the only context that we see them together in. And for them to kind of show up unexpectedly, it was like, it was almost as if we fast forward through a lot of, <laughs> I don't know, intimate stuff. <laughs> yeah, yeah, they're they're very close already. Yeah, I remember being so angsty and being like, "Oh, I want a boyfriend," and now it's like you gotta really, you gotta pat down every person you meet, and you're just like, <laughs> 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 oh, no. oh, no. 
She won't mind me saying this because she'd be the first to admit to it. She's a very angsty teenager. And she, like, identifies with Zuko so much. Slash also had, like, the biggest... When we were watching it growing up, she's actually the person who got me into Avatar. I just remember her having, like, one, both identifying with Zuko, like, on a character level, and then also being, like, super attracted to him. Of course. (laughs) And Greer, if you're listening to this, I just want the world to know that <laughs> um we haven't talked about the invasion really at all i always wondered why they didn't go back to the northern water tribe and be like hey want to help yeah i know <laughs> like want to help us i don't because like Sokka and katara's dad goes and like rounds up a bunch of people but like feel like they could have gotten more that was yeah. a great reunion moment all the same though that was exciting to me because it was like you think that those episodes are just one-off to where you meet characters and you'll never see them again and no they they come back yeah i think one of my favorite parts about the invasion is that interaction where they're following azula surprise azula is my favorite but like (laughs) they're chasing her through the volcano and at one point they have her trapped and then the sun peeks out and she's like oh i hear the fire fire bending's back on and just like (laughs) jumps them (laughs) Um, she reminds Sokka of Suki and it just shows us like how good what earlier in the earlier in the series she had said like I'm a people person or something like that maybe that's later I don't know it just shows you like how tactful Azula is and how manipulative she is Mm -hmm. they're down Katara which is okay if you're if I'm having like an offensive team right and I'm not without Katara. That sounds like a really big blow. Or Toph, too. I mean, like, yeah, Sokka, but, like, as, like an, as a team are, like, they really make that team. Yeah. One of the cool things about the Invasion episodes is the reveal of the Fire Nation Air Force. Not not just because it's a cool payoff to a setup from way back in Season 1, but because you might be wondering to yourself, looking back, like, why didn't they send in the super effective, fast air force to squash the invaders from the beginning of the invasion were they just saving them for a dramatic reveal and the answer is yes of course from a storytelling standpoint of course but also they couldn't send the airships to fight right before the eclipse because the airships run on firebending and if they were airborne during the eclipse they would have just crashed but they knew the eclipse was coming so they kept the ships grounded until the eclipse was over there's any video out there with like everything wrong with Avatar, if they ding it for that, like why didn't they just bring in the Air Force as soon as they were going to attack? It's like, eat it. Charlie just dumped on you. I mean, that's just something the show does very well. It manages to have dramatic reveals that are both surprising and actually make sense in the context of the show. Like they don't feel unearned. Anyway, we're starting to run out of time here. Is there anything else we really want to talk about real quick before we finish up? I just wanted to say that I think last uh, episode, um, uh, Carolyn, you said that you watched it live. I think you had friends or had friends over and stuff like that. Is that what happened? Like for the finale? Uh, with my sister because we were. I don't remember how old I was, but we watched it together live. Yeah, like I was just watching the finale or the midpoint of this one. Yeah, that, that the whole like a lot of the time during that episode, I was just thinking to myself, man, it would have been really great to like if the whole world was watching this and like no one knew what was going to happen and like being there to watch. 
friends and stuff like that. You rarely get that experience now, uh, unless it's for something like Game of Thrones. But also, Mm -hmm. there were commercial breaks. So (laughs) there was, there's very conveniently timed commercial break that like my sister almost lost her mind. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, no. Marilyn and I, because it was my first time watching it, it was a whole thing about, like, let's get the lens cleaner to clean our glasses. Let's like, <laughs> <it's so much. laughs> yeah, let's have, like, a, a whole brownie um, to eat. We cooked a whole meal. I don't remember what we ate, but we had a, a special meal. We washed our hair <laughs> before we did it. <laughs> <laughs> get, all, get all dressed to the nines. We were like, Angel, you go make the brownies. We're going to take a shower. <laughs> <laughs> I forgot about that. That's funny. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to finishing this journey with all of you. We'll pick this all back up next week as we ride into the final stretch of Avatar The Last Airbender. Listeners, if you'd like to share your own thoughts about Avatar, please email them to your friends at fangamer.com. You can also send us voicemails either by using the Anchor app on your phone or by emailing us your audio file. So listeners, if you have thoughts on these episodes, please send them over. Your questions and observations may help guide our conversation. We're also happy to answer any questions you might have on any subject, whether we are experts on the topic or not. I did not have time to prepare a bit about something I'm an expert at this week. So obviously I'm not an expert at time management. I'm not an expert at avoiding crosstalk during the intro and we're all saying hi. This this time was a fluke. Oh yeah, I like that. What what are the rest of you not experts at? Oh, singing. No matter how hard I try, um, my voice is just not pretty. (laughs) When I your voice. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, you do. I am not an expert at finishing my laundry ever. Perfect. All right. So thank you very much, Sarah and Jack and Carolyn, for joining me this week. Listeners, if you would like to support this podcast, please consider buying something from the Fangamer store. Alternately, just share us with your friends, tweet about us, or even tweet at us. Thank you, Super Soul Brothers, for the music on this episode, and thank you, listener, for listening. We're your friends at Fangamer. Try to make someone smile today, and let's plan on hanging out again next week. Bye.